All right, let's get this party started. What's happening? What's happening? And welcome to episode six of Zoopedia. My name is Zach Zoo, and I got a really exciting yet kind of messed up episode for you guys today. I love niche historical events that not many people know about, and I love telling people about them even more. Considering the fact that this episode is going to be more of a Debbie Downer in terms of people being ignorant to science back in the day and not understanding the ramifications of certain activities, I thought I'd give y'all a cheery and positive Zoopedia fun fact of the day. And the Zoopedia fun fact of the day is, did you know that a sheep, a duck, and a rooster were the first passengers in a hot air balloon? Yes sir, and yes ma'am, you heard that correctly. Back in 1783, seven years after we wrote the Declaration of Independence, the first hot air balloon was launched carrying a sheep, duck, and rooster. The flight lasted only eight minutes, but here's the best part. It landed safely with all of its passengers. And with that being said, buckle in for a riveting episode of Zoopedia. Time to hop in the DeLorean and go back in time 100 years or so. Let's take a journey. Today, we're going to be diving into the systematic failure of labor laws and big corporations from back in the early 1900s, think post-World War I time era. Now, time to get acquainted with the famous Radium Girls, and no, they weren't a girl band, but Radium Girls would have made an excellent name if it didn't have such a dark past attached to it. The Radium Girls were female factory workers who contracted radiation poisoning from painting watch dials with self-luminescent paint. Radiation poisoning is a collection of health effects due to exposure to high amounts of ionizing radiation over a short period of time. So think of what happened to the people of Chernobyl. Different, but same school of thought. The painting was done by women at three different United States radium factories and the term now applies to the women working at the facilities, one in Orange, New Jersey, beginning around 1917, one in Ottawa, Illinois, beginning in the early 1920s, and a third facility in Waterbury, Connecticut. The women in each facility had been told the paint was harmless and subsequently ingested deadly amounts of radium after being instructed to quote-unquote point their brushes on their lips in order to give them a fine tip like uh, the technique artists always use to paint something detailed. Some also painted their fingernails, face, and teeth with the glowing radiation substance. And obviously, since these women thought this was a harmless substance, they would go around and be like, hey, look at me, I'm glowing, and mess around with it and stuff, because who wouldn't do that if they were given glowing paint to mess around with? The women were instructed to point the brushes in this way because using rags or a water rinse caused them to use more time and material. The paint was made from powdered radium, gum arabic, and water by the way. Moving on to the United States Radium Corporation. From 1917 to 1926, US Radium Corporation, originally called the Radium Luminous Materials Corporation, was engaged in the extraction and purification of radium from carnitite ore to produce luminous paints which were marketed under the brand name of quote-unquote undark. People really sucked at being creative back in the day, I guess. Like, undark? Are you kidding me? You couldn't think of something better than that? The ore was mined from the Paradox Valley in Colorado and other 
quote-unquote undark mines in Utah, still hate that name, as a defense contractor, U.S. Radium was a major supplier of radioluminescent watches to the military. Their plant in Orange, New Jersey, employed over 100 workers, mainly women, to paint radium-lit watch faces and instruments, misleading them that it was safe. Moving on to radium exposure. U.S. Radium Corporation hired approximately 70 women to perform various tasks, including handling radium, while the owners and the scientists familiar with the effects of radium carefully avoided any exposure to it themselves. Wow, this is really messed up. I thought that no one understood the effects of radium during this time, and this factoid makes the entire situation infinitely worse. Chemists at the plant used lead screens, masks, and tongs, and U.S. Radium had distributed literature to the medical community describing the quote-unquote injurious effects of radium. In spite of this knowledge, a number of similar deaths had occurred by 1925, including the company's chief chemist, Dr. Edwin E. Lehman, and several female workers. The similar circumstances of their deaths prompted investigations to be undertaken by Dr. Harrison Martland, county physician of Newark. An estimated 4,000 workers were hired by corporations in the U.S. and Canada to paint watch faces with radium. At United States Radium Corporation, each of the painters mixed her own paint in a small crucible and then used camel hair brushes to apply the glowing paint onto dials. The then current rate of pay for painting 250 dials a day was about a penny and a half per dial, which is equivalent to 29 cents in 2019. Can you imagine getting a minimum wage job and getting your existence deleted because of a terrible company? Sign me back up for my delivery dude position ASAP, please. LaBrushes would lose shape after a few strokes, so the U.S. Radium supervisors encouraged their workers to point the brushes with their lips, and they used this catchphrase, lip, dip, paint, or use their tongues to keep them sharp. Because the true nature of the radium had been kept from them, the radium girls painted their nails, teeth, and faces for fun with the deadly paint produced at the factory, like I said beforehand. Many of the workers became sick, and it is unknown how many died from exposure to radiation. And it is at this point where I apologize to those who have weak stomachs, because we are going to be talking about the radiation sickness that these women suffered from. Many of the women later began to suffer from anemia, bone fractures, and necrosis of the jaw, a condition now known as radium jaw. Anemia is a decrease in red blood cells, which is a pretty big issue because that's what transports oxygen throughout your body, bone fractures, self-explanatory, and necrosis of the jaw or radium jaw, and that is basically when your jaw is literally disintegrating. Some of the radiation poisoning these girls had was so bad to the point that some girls literally lost their entire jaw completely. Yeah, and you thought going to the dentist was bad. And to give you guys a more personal outlook into the trials and tribulations that these women had to go through, here is an excerpt from an article on roadtrippers.com which details the fate of a girl named Molly Magia, who is one of the radium girls. When Molly died in 1922, at just 24 years old, 
several causes of death were blamed, including ulcerative stomachitis and syphilis. But in the year prior, Molly's jaw had been removed after it began to break apart. She developed anemia, and her mouth would not stop bleeding. By 1927, more than 50 other women had suffered similar fates in addition to crumbling teeth, collapsed spines, foul breath, pregnancy complications, aching joints, unexplained weight loss, extreme exhaustion, and brutal hemorrhaging, all of which were eventually determined to be caused by the women's repeated exposure and ingestion of radium. Later studies showed that the radium had actually bored holes in the women's bones while they were alive, which obviously is a horrifying and agonizing reality. Yet, when presented with these women in dire pain, aspirin was initially deemed an appropriate painkiller. I can literally hear you guys cringing right now from how horrible that sounds, but I had to put it in there. And now moving back to the Wikipedia article. It is thought that the x-ray machines used by the medical investigators may have contributed to some of the sickened workers' ill health by subjecting them to additional radiation. It turned out at least one of the examinations was a ruse, part of the campaign of disinformation started by the defense contractor. U.S. radium and other watch dial companies rejected claims that the afflicted workers were suffering from exposure to radium. For some time, doctors dentists, and researchers complied with requests from the companies not to release their data. At the urging of the companies, worker deaths were attributed by medical professionals to other causes. Syphilis, a notorious sexually transmitted infection at the time, was often cited in attempts to smear the reputations of the women. Good lord, people really are sometimes the worst, aren't they? Um... You can't hear it right now, but I'm violently shaking my head. The inventor of radium dial paint, Dr. Sabin A. von Sakaki, died in November 1928, becoming the 16th known victim of poisoning by radium dial paint. He had gotten sick from the radium in his hands, not the jaw, but the circumstances of his death helped the radium girls in court. And hold on real quick, it gets even worse, because now introducing another corporation, the Radium Dial Company. The Radium Dial Company was established in Ottawa, Illinois in 1922 in the town's former high school. Like the United States Radium Corporation, the purpose of the studio in Ottawa was to paint dials for clocks, their largest client being West Clocks Corporation in Peru, Illinois. Dials painted in Ottawa appeared in West Clocks' popular Big Ben, Little Ben, and Travel Clocks, and like United States Radium Corporation, Radium Dial hired young women to paint the dials using the same lip-dip paint approach as the women in New Jersey and by another unaffiliated plant in Waterbury, Connecticut that supplied the Waterbury Clock Company. Capitalism really sure was something back in the day, wasn't it? Following the termination of President Joseph Kelly from the company, Kelly established a competing firm in the town named Luminous Process Company, which also employed women in the same fashion and with the same conditions as other firms. Employees at Radium Dial began showing signs of radium poisoning in 1926 and 1927 and were unaware of the hearings and trials in New Jersey. 
Furthermore, radium dial leadership authorized physicals and other tests designed to determine the toxicity of radium paint to its employees, but the company never gave those records to the employees or told them of the results. Woohoo! Corporate ethics. In a half-hearted attempt to end the use of camel brushes, management introduced glass pens with a fine point. However, the workers found that the pens slowed down their productivity since they were paid by the piece, and they reverted to using the brushes again. When word of the New Jersey women and their suits appeared in local newspapers, the women were told that the radium was safe and that employees in New Jersey were showing signs of viral infections. Assured by their employers that the radium was safe, they returned to work as usual. This is extremely whack, and I can't believe this actually happened, and no one really knows about the entire situation. I know that employee standards are way better now, but still. These are the kind of events people need to remember in order to make sure this kind of injustice never happens again. Moving on to the significance of the Radium Girls, and starting off with litigation, which is basically the process of taking legal action. In New Jersey, the story of the abuse perpetrated against the workers is distinguished from most such cases by the fact that the ensuing litigation was covered widely by the media. Plant worker Grace Fryer decided to sue, but it took two years for her to find a lawyer willing to take on U.S. radium. Even after the women found a lawyer, the slow-moving courts held out for months. At their first appearance in court on January 1928, Two women were bedridden and none of them could raise their arms to take an oath because of the pain they were in. Can you imagine? A total of five factory workers, Grace Fryer, Edna Hussman, Catherine Schaub, and sisters Quinta McDonald and Albina Larice, dubbed the Radium Girls, joined the suit. The litigation and media sensation surrounding the case established legal precedents and triggered the enactment of regulations governing labor safety standards, including a baseline of provable suffering. In Illinois, employees began asking for compensation for their medical and dental bills as early as 1927, but were refused by management. The demand for money by sick and dying former employees continued into the mid-1930s before a suit before the Illinois Industrial Commission, aka the IIC, was brought. In 1937, five women found an attorney by the name of Leonard Grossman, shout out that guy, that would represent them in front of the commission. But by this time, Radium Dial had closed and moved to New York. The Illinois Industrial Commission did retain a $10,000 deposit left by Radium Dial when it disclosed to the IIC that they could not find any insurance to cover the cost of indemnifying the company against employee suits. Indemnify in this sense means that the employees were securing Radium Dial against legal liability for their actions. In the spring of 1938, the IIC ruled in favor of the women. The attorney, who's probably in hell right now, representing the interests of Radium Dial, appealed, hoping to get the verdict overturned, and again, the commission judge found for the women. Thank God. Radium Dial appealed over and over, taking the case all the way to the Supreme Court, and on October 23, 1939, the court decided not to hear the appeal, and the lower ruling was upheld, 
In the end, this case had been won eight times before the Radium Dial Corporation was finally forced to pay. The way business law is structured is absolutely insane, and the fact that the women had to go through this process eight times before justice was finally served is insane. As a wise man once said, justice is a dish best served cold, and if it were served warm, it would be just water. Sorry about that. Had to lighten the atmosphere in the room somehow. Shout out to all my dad joke enthusiasts out there. Moving on to historical impact. The Radium Girls saga holds an important place in the history of both the field of health physics and the labor rights movement. The right of individual workers to sue for damages from corporations due to labor abuse was established as a result of the Radium Girls case. In the wake of the case, industrial safety standards were exponentially enhanced for many decades. At least their sacrifice stood for something and they weren't forgotten. The case was settled in the autumn of 1928 and the trial was deliberated by the jury and the settlement for each of the Radium Girls was $10,000 and a $600 per year annuity, plus a $12 a week stipend for all of their lives while they lived. And translated into modern day economics, the $10,000 equates to $149,000, the $600 per year annuity equates to $8,900, and the $12 a week stipend is equivalent to $200. And all medical and legal expenses incurred would also be paid for by the company. This is a great end to a horrible situation, but even still, the sacrifice of one's quality of life, especially to the extent of the radium girls, it really is impossible to be compensated for. The lawsuit and resulting publicity was a factor in the establishment of occupational disease labor law. Radium dial painters were instructed in proper safety precautions and provided with protective gear. In particular, they no longer shaped paintbrushes by lip and avoided ingesting or breathing the paint. Radium paint was still used in dials as late as the 1960s. Moving on to scientific impact. Robley D. Evans made the first measurements of exhaled radon and radium excretion from a former dial painter in 1933. At MIT, he gathered dependable body content measurements from 27 dial painters. This information was used in 1941 by the National Bureau of Standards to establish the tolerance level for radium of 0.1 Curie. The Center for Human Radiobiology was established at Argonne National Laboratory in 1968. The primary purpose of the center was providing medical examinations for living dial painters. The project also focused on the collection of information and, in some cases, tissue samples from the radium dial painters. When the project ended in 1993, detailed information of 2,403 cases had been collected. This led to a book on the effects of radium on humans. Now for uh, some sciencey stuff that I don't really understand. The book suggests that radium-228 exposure is more harmful to health than exposure to radium-226. Radium-228 is more able to cause cancer of the bone as the shorter half-life of the radon-220 product compared to radon-222 causes the daughter nuclides of radium-228 to deliver a greater dose of alpha radiation to the bones. Shout out to all the people that actually understood what that meant because I had to withdraw out of Chemistry 1 freshman year of college. Yeah. 
It also considers the induction of a range of different forms of cancer as a result of internal exposure to radium and its daughter nuclides. The book used data from radium dial painters, people who were exposed as a result of the use of radium-containing medical products, and other groups of people who have been exposed to radium. And with all that being said, it seems that um, the Radium Girls had a pretty positive impact in the end. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Zoopedia. Hope you all have plenty of banter material to use because I think this has been one of the most interesting topics yet. Don't forget, if you have any ideas, be sure to shoot them my way at zoopediapodcast at gmail.com. And if there's an underlying lesson to be taken away from this episode, just like what the old man who was at the campsite me and my friends were at a few weeks ago said, life's too short to be working for assholes. Hope all of y'all have a fantastic day. Cheers!